Well, if any of you have been following social media, uh, or even mainstream media, news outlets, in the past few weeks, you've probably heard about the Asbury Revival. Um, Asbury University is a college in Wilmore, Kentucky, and there's a seminary attached to it, and I have some connections with the seminary and friends who've gone to the university, and so this experience, this 24-7 going on two or three week worship service uh, has gained popularity and acclaim all over, even in non-Christian sources. Now, I'm not here to debate the sincerity or authenticity of what's going on there, But you can see that Christians across the country are having those kinds of conversations. What seems to be happening, though, is an experience that is unique, that's abnormal, that is especially dramatic and profound. Uh, If what they say is happening is in fact happening, This is an extraordinary experience of God's presence and of the Holy Spirit's movement. This is what you could call a mountaintop experience. Now, Christians sometimes use that language. I had a mountaintop experience, usually to describe some moment of utter clarity, uh, perceiving God's presence as you've never perceived it before, Uh, maybe a vision of your calling, a kind of clear sight of your place in the world, that sort of thing. I want you to take a moment right now, before we go any further, to think about a mountaintop experience that you've had in your life, if you've had one. Try to think of a time when you felt the presence of God more viscerally, uh, you saw his, his face, his plan, more vividly than at other times. And try to think about the emotions that were produced and the lasting impact of such an experience. Experiences like this, these mountaintop experiences, when they happen, are great. They really are. They're great. But most of our life, as you know, is spent not on the mountain, but on the ground, sometimes even lower than that. So there are two questions, two framing questions that I'd like to ask this morning to structure uh, this message in Matthew 17. The first question is, how do we, how do we receive these extraordinary moments, how do we position ourselves to fully receive them when they do come? Because they do come. But how can we put ourselves in a place in which we can fully experience them for what they can be? That's question number one. The second question is perhaps more important, more relevant, and that is how do we live faithfully between those mountaintop experiences. So those long, long stretches of life that constitute most of human life, those stretches of ordinary living between those moments, how do we 
live faithfully in the in-between. Well, as I mentioned before, uh, today is what I call the last day of Epiphany. Um, Some people would say that last Sunday was the last day of Epiphany, and we're now in the season after Epiphany. But I like to think of Transfiguration Sunday as the last day of Epiphany because our series is closing in the same way in which it began, and that is with revelation or a disclosure. If you recall, the feast day of Epiphany uh, was on Friday, January 6th, and that is the uh, moment when the baby Jesus appears to the Magi, the first Gentiles. He's revealed to them. And then the first Sunday was the baptism of Jesus, where he is revealed to be the Son of God. So in the same way, this passage, the Transfiguration, presents a revealing, a disclosure of Jesus in his glory, his divine glory. And so it serves as a bookend to this series in Epiphany. So my plan this morning is to walk through uh, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, this very iconic passage in Scripture, and then to close with some words of application. Uh, But before we do that, before we move any further, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for this day, a day on which we look toward the mountain, the mountain which is such a powerful symbol in Scripture, which comes back in many different contexts and always points to you. Lord, I pray that this would be a fitting conclusion to our series in Epiphany as we journey with you, Jesus, through the beginnings of your ministry. Prepare our hearts as we enter into the season of Lent this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, and that you would lead us through a time of spiritual refreshment and restoration. We love you, Lord, and pray for soft hearts and that you would stimulate us this morning to your mission in the world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So before we read uh, the text, let me say a few words by way of context. Uh, We've been in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and so here we have a jump, a pretty sizable jump to Matthew 17. Um, The passage just before this in Matthew 16 features the first confession of Jesus' status as Messiah. And so Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? People are saying certain things about who I am, but who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter, the to-be apostle Peter, says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then after that, right before chapter 17, we get this passage about discipleship, where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, would follow me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. And then in verse 28 of Matthew 16, in that same paragraph, we get the mysterious verse where he says, there are some standing here, speaking to his disciples, there are some standing here who will not taste death, they will not die 
before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this is a very perplexing verse. It's hard to make sense of what this means. But it seems that Jesus is saying is that the, the coming of the Son of Man into his kingdom will happen soon. So soon that some of these disciples will see it before they die. And then right after this, in all of the synoptic Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right after this, we get the transfiguration. The account of Jesus' disclosure on the top of a mountain as the Son of God in full glory. And so I think it's no accident that the account is placed here. And I think in the transfiguration, with the disciples, we are seeing the Son of Man coming into his kingdom, at least the beginnings of it. So with that, I invite you to turn with me, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 17. I'll be reading from the ESV, as we do every week. So Matthew 17, starting at verse 1. And as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's word? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good. That we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces. And were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. You may be seated. The transfiguration is one of a handful of moments in the life of Jesus and also in the life of his disciples, a handful of climactic moments that you could call mountaintop experiences. You can think of his baptism, perhaps his birth, his crucifixion and death, his resurrection and ascension. Now, I think that we, too, as Christians, experience these kind of moments, perhaps not as vivid or dramatic as this one in Matthew 17, but these mountaintop experiences where we sense God's presence and His direction with extraordinary clarity. I think the challenge for us is, like I said before, to receive these moments when they come, 
to not be distracted by building tents or thinking of other things, but to truly experience what God has for us in those moments, but also to live faithfully in those long stretches of life in between. And so that, that is the idea that I'd like to draw out for us in this passage. So let's dive in. In verse 1 of Matthew 17, we get this reference to time, which is always significant in the Gospels. Peter, just before, has confessed Jesus to be the Christ in Caesarea Philippi, and it says, six days after this, Jesus took with him these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. So six days after six days, why is this significant? Well, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the work week was six days, and the Sabbath was celebrated or uh, observed on the seventh day. Not only this, but in the passage that was read by Kathleen in Exodus and in other places in the book of Exodus, Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the law from God. And in chapter 24 in particular, it says that this cloud that had been following Israel in the wilderness, this pillar of cloud that is God's presence, it says that the cloud overshadowed Mount Sinai for six days. It says it was there for six days and the people were looking at it. Moses was on the mountain but not at the top. And after six days, a voice from the cloud invites Moses to come in. So we'll see more parallels, but I think immediately this passage is signaling a connection to the story of Moses going up a mountain, experiencing God's presence, and then giving Torah, giving the law to the people. Some scholars point to a parallel uh, between the three associates here. Uh, Moses, in some texts, is said to bring Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. So three people with him. But other texts say that he brings Joshua, his assistant, rather than three so it could be that that parallel doesn't stand. Uh, but clearly there's a connection with Moses in the Old Testament, as we'll see with language of cloud and God's appearance and so forth. Also this image of a mountain, a high mountain. Uh, if you've read the Old Testament, you can think most likely of, of various stories involving a mountain. Abraham bringing his son Isaac up a mountain thinking that he would sacrifice him there. Of course, Moses ascending a mountain to receive the law. Elijah fighting the prophets of Baal on a mountain. Elijah, too, experiencing God's presence on a mountain. Israel and Jerusalem was even spoken of as this mountain, the mountain of the house of the Lord. We've talked about this. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So mountain language is significant, and some point to the mountaintop as this sort of in-between space between earth and heaven, this kind of realm in which you're at the extremities of earth, 
and the lower part of heaven. This is a place where people encounter God. So in verse 2, we're probably expecting, with a connection to the story of Moses, we're expecting this kind of dramatic appearance of God, like he did in Exodus. And we get it in verse 2. It says, on the top of the mountain, that Jesus was transfigured in their presence. Transfigured is what the ESV has translated for us. This is the Greek word uh, metamorphothi, which is where we get our word metamorphosis. Um, And it only occurs a couple times in the New Testament. Uh, Twice in the transfiguration accounts in Mark and Matthew, and twice in Paul's letters. And so one of those occurrences is in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed, transfigured by the renewing of your mind. We also get this in 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul is referring to the story of Moses coming down from the mountain, his face glowing, and he talks about believers looking at the face of God, the face of Christ, and being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's what it says. So we have this transformation of Jesus in Mark and Matthew, but we also have this transformation of Jesus' followers in the letters of Paul. And so as we think about Jesus being transformed from his peasant Galilean uh, garments and his status as this uh, lowly son of Joseph into this divine figure, I think we should think of our transformation as well as we look on the face of Jesus, and we too are transfigured. So moving on, it says that his face describes the transfiguration, what's happening. It says his face shone like the sun. And this is the verb lampo, where we get our word lamp. And that comes in Matthew 5. Let your light shine before others. That's the same word. His face is shining. It says, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. This, friends, is language you'll see all over the Old Testament where prophets and other figures get a vision of God. Daniel speaks this way about the Ancient of Days, this God figure sitting on a throne and his his face is like fire, it's like the sun. His hair is, is white and his clothes are shining and white. We see this all over, even in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And so it's clear that this language, Jesus' face shining like the sun in all its brilliance, and his clothing not looking like peasant rags, but, but like light itself, this is the language of God in the Old Testament. So Jesus is being revealed in his divine glory. That's what the text is signaling. In verse 3, we get some appearances, some other figures from the Old Testament showing up. In verse 3, it says, Behold, and this is a common word uh, used to introduce a, a vision, a prophetic vision, or the appearance of an angel, or even God himself. It says, Behold, there appeared to them, this is the disciples on the mountain, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, 
talking with Jesus. And so this makes the connection with Exodus, the story of Moses, so clear, so explicit. But it also includes this figure, Elijah, who, like I said, had some mountaintop experiences in his time. It's striking to imagine Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah, a kind of three-way conversation. Because we've talked about how Christians ought to read the Old Testament, how we ought to read the Bible. And I think this is such a symbolic vision of what that looks like. We have Jesus who has reinterpreted Torah for us in the Sermon on the Mount, having a conversation with Moses, who often stands for the law, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, and Elijah, who even though he didn't write anything, he's often associated with the prophets. So we have the law and the prophets speaking with Jesus, this bearer of a new covenant, and they're engaged in conversation. So as we approach the scriptures today, I think this image is helpful as we think of how Jesus' words are set in conversation with the words of Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament. So that's the scene. Jesus is appearing in his divine glory, and these two figures from ancient history have appeared with him. And then Peter, bless his heart, Peter, comes out in verse 4. And Peter has, has a tendency to put his foot in his mouth, I guess you could say. And here he says this. He says, Lord, it's, it's wonderful that we're here. This is a great experience, a wonderful moment. Lord, if you would like, I can build, I can pitch three tents on top of the mountain. Three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, friends, I have no idea where Peter would get the materials to pitch these tents, whether he brought a pack with him. But I think of this almost anxious, eager to show hospitality, first century Palestinian Jew just, just trying to uh, show these, these guests a, a warm welcome. I, there are probably other ways to read this, but you think of the value of hospitality in ancient Israelite culture, and I think Peter, Peter is, is trying to be hospitable here. And it says in verse 5, which I find humor in this, it says that while he was still speaking, behold, we get another behold, a radiant cloud, a shining cloud, which again, friends, is just a hyperlink to these passages in Exodus that talk about the pillar of cloud, God appearing as a cloud. This, this shining cloud, it says, overshadowed them. And this is, this is the same verb used in Luke when Gabriel says to Mary, do not fear, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and you will give birth to a son. So it refers to a literal shadow casting shade, throwing shade, um, but also to this intimate involvement of God where he enters into the lives of human beings. But this cloud overshadows the mountain, and behold, a voice comes from the cloud, 
And here we get the same exact statement from Jesus' baptism. He says, mostly to Peter, this, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But then we get two more words that weren't in the baptism. He says, listen to him. (laughs) Now what's so striking, friends, as we think about Moses, is in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, he knows he's going to die before he enters the promised land. And he tells the people of Israel, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet after me from among the people. A prophet that is, that is better than me, that is, that's coming after. And you must listen to him. That's the language, Deuteronomy 18. And that prophet, historically, was a man by the name of Joshua. Or in Hebrew, it's Yehoshua. Or in Greek, Jesus, Jesus. So here we have this connection with Moses being extended to a connection with Joshua. Jesus is being presented as this prophet who would come after Moses. But more than just the historical Joshua, this Yeshua who would be king forever says, listen to him. As a result of this in verse 6, the disciples, understandably, fall on their faces and are, it says, exceedingly terrified. This is commonly what happens when people witness the presence of God, as they fall on their faces in abject fear and humility and shame. And so these three disciples are on the ground, face to the earth, afraid, terrified, And it says, Jesus approached them. Verse 7, he came near, drew near to them, and he touched them with his human hands. This glorious, divine, Son of God figure appearing in all of his splendor stoops down as a human being and touches, touches his disciples. We get language like this all over the Old Testament where angels and other figures touch persons such as Elijah when he's at death's door. Daniel is touched. And in many of those cases, the touching, it uh, enlivens or energizes, it empowers. It allows these depressed and dejected prophets to stand up and to walk with confidence. In the same way here, Jesus' touch, his tender touch, helps the disciples to shed their fear and to stand up. It says, raising their eyes, lifting up their eyes from the ground, all they saw was Jesus. Friends, imagine that. Imagine being put into a situation, being given an experience, a circumstance where You are just overwhelmed or bewildered by your smallness, by the world's ruthlessness, even just utterly struck by the power and sovereignty of God, and you're scared. Then imagine feeling a touch and lifting your eyes, and you don't see any storm, 
You don't see any thunder, any clouds, any war, any division. All you see is your friend, Jesus. After this, it says that he led them down the mountain back to normal life. And he tells them not to share this with anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And we get this sort of thing elsewhere in Matthew where Jesus urges his disciples and those he heals to keep quiet until a certain time comes. So to say it again, the transfiguration is one of a, a handful of climactic, dramatic moments in the life of Jesus and his disciples. And, and I think we too experience moments like this. And the challenge is to position ourselves, to pray that God would position us so that we can receive these moments well. But more so that we can live faithfully, trustingly, in the in-between, what makes up the majority of our lives. In the sixth book of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, we have these two children, Jill and Eustace, who are sent on a mission in the realm of Narnia. And now before this mission, Aslan, who is this great lion, kind of God or Christ figure in the series, Aslan takes Jill, the young girl, aside and gives her a warning before the mission begins. And this is what he says. He says, here on the mountain, at this point they are positioned on a high, high, high mountain, here on the mountain I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart, and to pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. After this, Aslan blows with his breath. He blows Jill off of the mountain cliff, delivering her safely to Narnia. And if anyone has read The Silver Chair, you'll know that Aslan's warnings definitely ring true. He says, remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Now, in this story, the signs which Lewis speaks are really God's commands, especially the few commands Aslan gives in the story. But I think that these signs can also be applied to our mountaintop experiences. Those rare experiences that come few and far between, these dramatic, vivid mountaintop experiences, like the signs, 
need to be remembered and re-believed constantly. Like I said before, and as you know, most of life is lived below the mountain. You could say it's at sea level, even lower than that at times. But God sometimes, in His grace, blesses us with these mountaintop experiences, which are meant to propel us through life in between. Now, those experiences can take any form whatsoever. You don't have to be on a literal mountain, although Mount Katahdin certainly helps. Um, You don't have to be on the beach at sunrise or on some backpacking trip in Europe. No, you could be on the way to work, your commute in the morning, in your den, sipping your coffee before the day has begun. You could be grocery shopping, anything. The Lord can meet you anywhere. My, my plea this morning for us is not that we would crave more of these moments. I don't think that's the point. But my prayer is that we would be ready when these moments do come. And that after they've passed, and they will pass, that after they've passed, God would help us remember Remember, remember, through those long, long stretches in between. Let me close with this. Mountaintop experiences are meant to be few and far between. I pray, though, that when these rare moments do come, that you'll be ready to receive them for what they are and to remember them during life in between. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the mountain and the role that it plays and has played in the lives of God's people. But I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to savor and fully experience those short, dramatic moments that we'd remember them and re-believe them and sit in them and that they would help us during those long, ordinary stretches in between. Help us, Lord, to live on the ground, perhaps in the valley, but to remember those times when you appeared to us, when you warmed our hearts in extraordinary ways. Help us to take those Memories with us as we do the the long work of discipleship and following you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.